Philippians chapter 2, I'll be reading Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Holy Father, glorious King Jesus, in the presence of the Spirit, let us taste again this morning the beauty of these words. Affect us for your glory. This helped me as a teacher unfold it. And oh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 11 covers a number of great doctrines of Christ. This is our fourth week in this passage, and this old hymn, it, it takes us from the very high point of Christ's eternal glory without beginning to His low point of humility, becoming human and suffering and dying. And now again, beginning at verse 9, Paul moves us back up to the climax where this man is exalted. The exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth, which we saw last week is symbolized by God bestowing upon him the name that is above every name. Kurios, it's Greek for Lord, or referring to the Hebrew Yahweh, God's personal name. So just, just in brief, where, where we've been, we saw last week that there is no other name other than the Tetragrammaton, the four letters that has a right to be called the name that is above every name. Secondly, we saw that the flow of verses 9 to 11, it doesn't stop with the phrase and bestowed on Jesus the name, but it points to the pinnacle that every tongue will confess about Jesus that he is the name. Curios. Yahweh. Which means that the significant thing is that the Lord God, the Father, has bestowed on His eternal Son who became a human being and in His humanity declaring Him who He's always been, Yahweh. And that bestowal, that giving of that name is the rarest of all honors. As Isaiah 42, 8 says, 
I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. In other words, it's my name. It's no one else's name. The four letters. Yahweh. And thus to give such a name to Jesus of Nazareth is to confess His deity. In His exalted state, this God-man, Jesus, has a rank involving the exercise of universal sovereignty and authority. He's Yahweh. He's also Adonai, sovereign Lord of the universe. And so when He's given the name... That, in one sense, that gain of the name officially is the point. It's like an official coronation of the King, of Jesus. It was not a giving of the name, the divine name, that made Him or caused Him to be divine or God. It is the bestowal of that name on God in resurrected, ascended, reigning on David's throne forever. He is Yahweh. All authority in heaven and on earth was always His. But it was also given to him. Remember, Jesus was in Galilee after his resurrection, and he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting on that reality, writes this in Ephesians chapter 1 about God's great might that He worked in Christ when He, God, raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the one to come. And then thirdly this morning, we see that the purpose clause of verses 10 to 11 describes the allegiance, the honor, the worship that will be given to the one whose name ranks above all names. In our passage, the purpose of Jesus' exaltation is twofold. One, so that every knee will bow. Two, that every tongue will confess. And those two expressions, the knee bowing, the tongues confessing, don't come out of thin air to Paul. 
He's looking at Isaiah chapter 45. 700 years before Christ came. He's looking at chapter 45 verse 23. So turn there with me. Actually, the context of verses 22 to 25 is is worth reading. So hear the word of the Lord through Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return And here's the word. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, translates that last line. Essentially the way Paul gives it to us. Every tongue shall confess. To God. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so the uniqueness of the God of Israel is proclaimed right here in Isaiah 45, His universal triumph is placard. Yahweh, who has always declared that He will not share His name or His glory with another, here He swears by Himself that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Again, see it? By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. And the Apostle Paul, he sees these words, And he unhesitatingly applied them to Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Yahweh, God. This is a clear statement of Jesus' deity. And yet in it, Jesus is distinguished from God, the Father. It is God, according to Paul, who exalted Jesus to the highest place in the universe. And he says, Jesus Christ, here's the confession, is Yahweh to the glory of God, the Father. This is Trinitarian language. And the result of Jesus' exaltation is that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the truth. That Jesus Christ is God. He's Yahweh. He's Lord. 
it does not say every knee and every tongue should or they ought to confess this. It's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a goal of God's and it will happen. The bowing of every knee, we know though, does not occur, at least on earth, until the final day. Paul knows that the Philippian Christians, they have, they have joyfully, happily bowed the knee in submission to Jesus as Yahweh, their Lord. But the bowing that Paul's talking about will be universal. He says, every pawn, every knee. But that is not yet. But that day, it will come. And he's not talking about an unbiblical teaching called universalism, which teaches that every human being will ultimately be saved and forgiven of their sins. So here, don't assume that the bowing by every person will be in this glad, happy acknowledgement that the Lord Jesus in history is actually Yahweh. Because verse 10 explains the meaning of every knee. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which includes those who love Him and those who are rock hard against Him. But they all will acknowledge it one day. I mean, look, my best guess, why does Paul add that? Is it, I think, best I can do, is it by heaven he's talking about the angels, the angelic creatures will all acknowledge this? On earth, human beings, they all will acknowledge this. Under the earth, either dead human beings or demons or whatever. But the point is, all will bend the knee either in this joyful, saving, spontaneity or in reluctant fear to acknowledge the sovereignty of the crucified man as Yahweh. And therefore, for unbelievers, the bowing is an act of submission to the one whose power they cannot resist. And that interpretation right there fits precisely with what Isaiah 45 tells us. Let me read it again. End of verse 23 in Isaiah 45. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance or confess to God. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. And here come the words. To Him 
shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Although everyone confesses that in Yahweh alone are righteousness and strength, everyone bows the knee. Nevertheless, in doing it, to Yahweh shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Not everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Yahweh out of a happy submission. Philippians 2 promises that Jesus will have the last word. That he will be utterly vindicated and that in the end no opposition will remain standing. There will be no universal salvation, but there will be universal acknowledgement of who he actually is. And this means that all of us walking the earth today, we will either repent and joyfully confess him with our heart as our savior and the lover of our souls, or we will confess him one day in shame and terror on the last day. But confess him, we all will. I want you to listen one other time. Paul goes to Isaiah 45 and uses it. It's in Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. And he says this. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written. And now he quotes Isaiah 45. For it's written. As I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every knee, every tongue will acknowledge the ultimate reality that Jesus the Jesus of history, the man crucified, was raised. He is the creator of the universe. He is Yahweh. And the full impact of the truth that Jesus Christ is Yahweh is seen when you realize that that name that's bestowed upon him here in Philippians 2 is a name that supersedes all the other names he has. Supersedes all the other titles. For instance, Jesus is the Christ. In other words, in the Hebrew, he's the Mashiach, the anointed one, translated into Greek, Christos, into English, Christ. He's the promised deliverer. That's who he is. He's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the Son of Man. 
as he referred to himself constantly in his ministry, not meaning his humanity, but meaning Daniel 7, referring to this returning king in glory. He's also the Son of God as the demons recognized. As his apostle John wrote, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. He is the high priest. He's the king who reigns and sits on David's throne. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the door. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. But the name, Kurios, Yahweh, is above them all. It is that name to where everyone will bow. Every tongue will confess. Because there is no other word than Yahweh that identifies Him more clearly as God. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel who encountered Moses at the burning bush. That means our Lord Jesus, He rules and He reigns right at this moment just as the Father rules and reigns. He controls every molecule. He controls the tiniest things of your life. And one day, He will subdue all His enemies. But not yet. Which means the Christian life is not an escape from the world's troubles and pains and temptations and sufferings. If it were, he would have taken us out at new birth. But in trials, Christians have peace. We're meant to have peace, knowing that all of these things we experience now are in His control. And that the King, the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, loves us. And thus what Paul says in Romans 8 is absolutely true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. Our trusting in the Lord is trusting that all the difficulties are not meaningless. They all have for everyone who belongs to the shepherd. They all have a good 
everlasting purpose. So one other great truth that's contained in the reality that this human being, Jesus, is Yahweh, sovereign ruler of the universe, is this. It means He is coming back. I want you to turn over for a moment to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 8 to 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And God, it's referring to putting everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death. For everyone. Now notice the language in Philippians 2. God bestowed upon Jesus the name. In Hebrews 2, God put everything under His feet. He left nothing. Nothing that is not subject to Jesus. But at that point then, in the writer of Hebrews, he, he takes this pause, he takes this break to say these very obvious words. At present, we do not yet see that. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Jesus is the I Am, He is Yahweh, He is Adonai, Sovereign Lord of the Universe. But if He is, and to ultimately subdue and reign, then this crucified, resurrected, now ascended God-man, He must return. He must return and conquer all evil and establish His righteousness forever. So as we're drawing to a close, turn with me. So we look at this together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This great passage, this great hope and as we read it, I want you to notice at the beginning, part of it is he's referring to our mortality, our, our death, what happens, being with the Lord, that, that he's using that, that very human, personal name, 
Jesus. And when He transitions to His coming back, He uses this name. Five times, Lord Kurios. Starting with verse 13, chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, by asleep he means have died. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have died. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with Yahweh. And therefore, encourage one another with these words. Christians are those who have a deep confidence that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is Yahweh, is God, and at the core of that faith is the hope. It's the anticipation of His coming back in His human resurrection. And that's why Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, continue to encourage one another with, with, with that truth. With, with these words. That means Christians look forward to the Lord's coming back. And from that promise, it's where we derive strength by the Holy Spirit in the midst of everything not yet being subject to Him. Why there's pain and death and cancer and suffering and heartbreak. We look forward. And all of that is wrapped up really in this confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. Kurios. He's Yahweh. And there was a very, very early prayer 
of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that survived. It was at the core of their prayer life. And that prayer was preserved for us in the Aramaic. As we see it at the very end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, well, here's the English translation of it. Our Lord, come. Now, it's Maranatha. You've heard that. Maranatha. Two words. They are not translated. He doesn't say kurios in Greek, come. It's the Aramaic, what the Jews spoke in Palestine. It's a prayer of the early church. It's how we know because this, just like you know some Greek words, and you, and you know a Hebrew word, Yahweh. You know agape in Greek as a Christian probably, and logos, because that's a transliteration into English, not a translation. If you translated agape, we translated love. If you transliterate it, you just say how they would say it, but you use English characters. Well, that's what Paul did here with Gentiles. They know an Aramaic, two words, short, central prayer. Mar, Lord, with a suffix, Anna, Marana, means our, and then the word thaw. Come, our Lord, come. Clearly this began with the Peters and the Johns and the Jameses and the Bartholomews, as we heard read this morning. And they stood there and he was taken up and then disappeared out of their sight into the clouds. And the angel said, he will come back. This was the prayer. We know it's early because Paul the other Christians, one thing they taught non-Jews who didn't know anything about the Aramaic language, they taught them how to say an Aramaic prayer. We see it right there to the predominantly Gentile church way off in Corinth, Greece, years later. So why? Why did that prayer survive like that? Why did Paul teach? Because the theology in that prayer. The longing of that prayer is sensual.
Christianity is. And if you turn to the end of the book, the end of the last book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it ends like this. He who testifies to these things says, Hear the Lord. Surely I am coming soon. John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Creator of the universe. He's the voice that spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I am. He's Yahweh. He suffered and He died for us whom He has brought to Himself. Punished for our sins and our sinful disposition which we still have but will not always because He's promised to come back. And to raise us from the dead or to change our mortal living body into immortality in an instant. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are so good. Many of us have our own stories at different times of our lives and what you have done and the pain often through which you have done it when we came first to see. To see the truth and the beauty and the desirableness of the gospel of your dying and rising and descending and the promise Forgiveness of sins by trusting you alone. You're good. We thank you for your ongoing work in our lives. To the glory of your holy name. Amen.